The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Misty Magic Madness rains dollars down on September reading lists. Two dragons and a tree of AI-imbued black metal, whose leaves rustle like the sound of Norway ramming into Sweden during the era of continental formation. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's uncompromising honor. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. Happy Labor Day. So much time to read. But hey, we would be grateful if you would go to iTunes or wherever you get the podcast and give the Bain Free Radio Hour a five-star rating and thank you. Thank you very much. And remember, you can get the video version of the podcast at the Bain.com site and on the Bain YouTube channel. In fact, all of the podcasts going back into the misty, misty mist of time are there on the Bain YouTube channel, including this one. So check that out. This time we have part one of a two-part interview with Larry Correa. Larry discusses his new high fantasy novel, Destroyer of Worlds. This is the third book in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior series, and it's full of adventure, confrontation, and revelation like none before. It's really a big book in the series. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Now here's the news. Well, 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 you won't have to labor over this. We have a new Bain Book September ebook special to tell you about. It's the Misty Magic ebook sale. Save on Mercedes Lackey ebooks all September long. Load up on Lackey. Save more than 28%. That's a savings of $2 per ebook on four titles. Those books are Silence by Mercedes Lackey and Cody Martin, Breaking Silence, the sequel by Mercedes Lackey and Cody Martin, The Waters in the Wild by Mercedes Lackey and Rosemary Edgehill. And The Wizard of Carries by Mercedes Lackey, Eric Flint, and Dave Freer. Plus, save $1 on all Mercedes Lackey's ebooks. That's all of them. These include ebooks in the Serrated Edge series and the Bedlam Bard series, as well as all of Mercedes Lackey's fantasies for Bane books. And what the heck? We've put all Mercedes Lackey's science fiction ebooks on sale as well. This includes all the Wizard of Carries, um, the entire Secret World Chronicle series, The Ship Who Searched by Mercedes Lackey and Anne McCaffrey, and many, many more. The sale continues only through the stroke of midnight, October 1st. So take advantage of these great savings now. Hey, do we ever have a firework blossom of new Bane hardcovers and trade paperbacks for you in September? First, there's Destroyer of Worlds by Larry Correa. We'll talk with Larry in a moment about this book. Ashok Vidal, once a remorseless and highly effective protector of the law, is now the reluctant military commander of a throng of rebels and misfits and turncoat to a treacherous empire built on the mass murder of an entire cast of people. If it's war the capital wants, then it's war they will have. 
Vidal has faced down gods and demons before and overcome them, and he will do it again. Also at Booksellers in September is Nightwatch by Tim Akers. John Rast went to the Ren Fair looking for a fight. Yeah, a simulated fight with blunt swords and safety equipment, but then his opponent turned into a living, fire-breathing dragon, and John finds himself in the fight of his life. And that's when destiny comes to call. Finally in September, for the first time in trade paperback and with a beautiful all-new cover, is There Will Be Dragons by John Ringo. After a period of worldwide peace, the earth descends into chaos and war. Edmund Talbot, Master Smith, an unassuming historian, finds that all the problems of the world are falling in his lap. Enemies, new and old, gather like jackals around a wounded lion. But what the jackals do not know is that while old he may be, this lion is far from death. And hidden in the past is a mystery that has waited until this time to be revealed. There Will Be Dragons by John Ringo, Nightwatch by Tim Akers, and Destroyer of Worlds by Larry Correa are now available at booksellers everywhere. This is part one of a two-part interview with Larry Correa discussing Destroyer of Worlds. Part two will be available on next week's podcast. Hey, I want to welcome Larry Correa back to the podcast. Hey, Larry. Hey, guys. Uh, Larry Correa is the creator of the Wall Street Journal and New York Times best-selling Monster Hunter series with first entry Monster Hunter International, as well as the urban fantasy hardbold adventure saga, The Grim Noir Chronicles, one of my favorites. The first entry is Hard Magic and his epic fantasy series, which we'll be talking about, The Saga of the Forgotten Warrior, includes first entry Son of the Black Sword, House of Assassins, and uh, the latest entry is Destroyer, Destroyer of Worlds. Uh, Larry's an avid gun user and advocate who shot on a competitive level for many years. Uh, before becoming a full-time writer, he was an accountant. Um, I can't believe you gave that up for, for, for writing, but uh, you know, a lot of writers spend their lives just trying to make it as an accountant, but, and you had well, it. Accounting you is had fun, it. to be fair. I, I, I actually enjoyed that. That was a fun job. Yeah. So uh, Larry lives in Utah with his wife and family. Now you tell me, I understand you're in your writing room right now, since we're on video, um, you know, we're doing these, uh, one is video and one is audio now. Um, could you show the video users your uh, secret sure. inner sanctum of a monster hunter? -dom? Sure thing. Um, this is my office. This is my writing desk right here where I work. Uh, I have kind of the back corner of this room. That's my painting area over there. But just to give you guys an idea, uh, it's my office slash my video game area. It's my wargaming tables. Uh, I got about 30 feet of minis. It's kind of a mess right now because I was changing some stuff. But uh, yeah, I've got a pretty good size office, about 1,100 square feet of, of Larry's, Larry's party room. Now, you used to like write in the little like dank closet in the basement when you first started. Yeah. Right? Yeah, actually, uh, so I wrote my first book, uh, and it was in the basement of our little tiny house, and we had, uh, it was concrete, it was, un it was an unfinished room, 
My desk was an old door on top of cinder blocks. Uh, in the winter, I would actually write with gloves and a hat on because <laughs> it was so cold. And uh, yeah, but it was, yeah. Uh, I did that for I did that for a few years, and uh, then moved to a different house where I actually had my own little writing area, which was kind of cool. And then when we built this house, I went completely crazy. <laughs> it looks like you're up in the attic, sort of. I am, yeah. So I've got a four-car garage, and so this is the room uh, on top of the whole garage, basically, is my office. So it's pretty sweet. I got really cool views. Uh, let's see. Got really cool mountain views all the way around, which is kind of neat. And, oh, that's uh, beautiful. You guys a little bit of an idea here. So that's kind of fun. Yep. So that's yeah, yeah. Looks like you could also uh, do a little shooting in your yard. Um. Yeah, I will not confirm nor deny shooting a rifle out my office window. Will not confirm. <laughs> All right. Well, out now at Booksellers, we should say, is uh, Destroy of Worlds, um, which is, this is the, uh, this is that third book in the saga of the Forgotten Warriors um, uh, series, and it's not the last book, it's not a, it's not a trilogy, it's a Bane trilogy, so. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, it no, is so a, it's a really a culminating sort of, uh, it's a big book, um, a big story book. Um, that uh, that 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 has the meetings of people that we have uh, been following for the for the past two books um, in some deadly combat, as well as some some not deadly uh, entanglements. So, <laughs> what can we talk about? Um, where are we at the beginning of this book uh, after House of Assassins? Well, um, okay. So first off, for the people who who have uh, read the series so far. Um, you know, House of Assassins was, uh, it was like the, 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 the quest, if you will, was to, to reclaim the prophet Thera and rescue her at the House of Assassins. And so we left off right after that. The House of Assassins had gotten blown up. Ashok had gotten buried fighting a bunch of demons. And uh, this picks up right after that. They've been living, uh, if you will, off the grid <laughs> for the last, for the winter. And uh, the story picks up from there uh they're joining the rebellion they're, they're now that uh, winter's over they can travel again they're going to rejoin the rebellion uh which was started by Keta. uh and uh they we get to see the rebellion secret hideout which we've talked about for two books now um which, uh and they basically wander as they're crossing the plains they wander into the great extermination as we're in the last book we had where the kind of political machinations were going on in this um they had launched the, the, an experiment to see if they could uh, exterminate the entire castless um, case, millions of people in a genocide. And they said, well, let's do a little experiment. We'll pick this one area. And the area they picked specifically because that's where the new Ashok was nearby. Because they wanted to draw Ashok out and use him for chaos. And uh, so the story goes with there with Ashok basically blundering into the middle of the genocide uh, and not liking it very much. And, uh, I think the tagline on the back of the book is if it's war that they want, it's war they'll get. And so Ashok goes to war and uh, it's pretty brutal. It's a, it's a, it's a fun book, but it is a dark book. And uh, this is kind of the, what, maybe explain the milieu a little uh, because we are in a, uh, we, 
we're in a caste society. Uh, there's magic. That, a certain yeah. kind. Everything's really kind of, kind of. I thought uh, about it as I started explaining the third book in the series. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I probably should have talked about the series first. Um, okay, so the world, uh, it's uh, set on the continent of Locke. Uh, they are, uh, these people have been isolated from the rest of the world. They don't know what's going on in the rest of the world for the last thousand years. I should uh, I should mention that there's a beautiful map in here. Um, oh, yeah. Isaac Stewart did the map. Absolutely beautiful map. Love that map. We need to update it because I keep adding towns. <laughs> um, no, so uh, basically these, these people on this one continent are cut off from the rest of the world because the sea, uh, the ocean is filled with horrific monsters, demons. Basically, to these people, the ocean is literally hell. Uh, mankind doesn't go into the water and uh, demons don't come on land. And when they do, it's not pretty. And uh, so th this one continent has been isolated for about a thousand years. They, uh, they have a very strict society. They have an all-consuming law uh, that has divided people into caste. Uh, everybody has a place. The law has a mandated place for every single person. And uh, th there is no religion. Religion is entirely banned. It's been banned for a long time. And because the law basically is religion, there's no gods, just the law. And the capital is the, this one city in the middle that is the supreme, it's in the middle because it's as far away from the ocean as possible. And it's the supreme arbiter of the law. Uh, main character is a guy named Ashok Vidal, who is a, uh, basically he's a uh, magical roving law enforcement agent uh, when the series opens. He's the guy that goes around uh, killing basically anybody who goes against the law this, this guy who has burned villages for a living he is kind of like an atheist person. paladin that yes um <laughs> if you believe you better watch out yeah ashok is lawful lawful <laughs> and uh but that's when we first meet him but what happens is this as the story unfolds uh it turns out there's a lot of things going on that uh, the truth has been kept from him He's not really who he thinks he is. Uh, he's been lied to. And uh, stuff just kind of spirals out of control from there. And that first book is Son of the Black Sword. Uh, his second book is House of Assassins. And third book now is Destroyer Worlds. Yeah. And, and this one, he's he's come a long way, <laughs> including oh, yeah. off of a meat hook. <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah. I'm one of the only people I can think of who came up with a way to use a meat hook as a, as a religious symbol. <laughs> That's a great scene from House of Assassins. So, yeah. at, at this point, he's he's lead, he is not exactly leading, but he is basically in charge of an army. Um, and they are they're hanging out in the swamp. Uh, these uh, the Sons of the Black Sword with uh, these guys called the Wild Men. That's what he calls them. Um, and uh, who's with him? Thera's with him. Who he's rescued? Uh, who yeah. is Thera? Uh, Thera, okay, so she's one of the one of the main characters in the series. Uh, when we first meet her in the first book, um, this is going to be a lot of spoilers for people. When we first meet Thera, we think that she's just a rebel. She's a, a, a rebel, a criminal, a smuggler. Uh, and that's what you think she is. In reality, she is actually the prophet that has been inspiring this rebellion amongst the castless with all her uh, prophecies. Because she does have this weird thing that comes upon her, and she sees the future, and it comes true. Um, and so she's inspired this giant rebellion. And as the series goes on, in the second book especially, we learn a lot more about her past, um, where this gift comes from. 
basically there's a couple sources of magic in this world. Um, magic that comes from demons and magic that comes from a material called black steel. Uh, but then Thera has a third kind that no one has ever seen before. And uh, people are trying to figure out what that is. That's why she's so valuable to a lot of people. And, uh, but she basically has a gift slash curse where the gods speak to her and, uh, and speak through her. So it's actually kind of cool. Thera is a, a major character. She's a lot of fun, actually. She's very pragmatic. She's very practical. Um, Good with the knives. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, well, so one of the things when people do fantasy novels, a lot of times they get hung up on the whole waif-foo thing where, like, a 105-pound girl kills a, you know, 300-pound man with bare hands through the power of moxie. <laughs> no, not Thera. Thera, Thera, is, Thera uses what she has to her advantages. She's not a frontline fighter, but she will slash your throat in a heartbeat and you will never see it coming. That woman will play the victim like, oh, woe is me. Stab, stab, stab. <laughs> she is brutal. She has killed a lot of people in this series, actually. And uh, I'd say 99% of the time is people who just never saw it coming. Uh, no, Thera's great. I actually love Thera. So Ashok goes from being this uh, paladin, basically the supreme law enforcement agent or protector uh, and when he's revealed to be a fraud by a station of birth, his punishment, his condemnation is he is ordered to protect this criminal, her. Uh, so Thera, uh, it becomes Ashok's charge. So he hates her at first. And so we spent uh, basically a book of him kind of sort of getting to the point where he doesn't totally despise her. The second book, he has to rescue her. Uh, and now we're in the third book. And so the relationship between those two is huge uh it's pretty pivotal i get to uh, have a lot of fun with that so the, the two two really two really cool characters yeah and, and uh, i mean ashok is just not the kind of guy who uh is romantic at first oh gosh no <laughs> uh well because because you know this is based loosely on indian culture and that kind of thing and if, if this was a movie every single actor cast in it would be from bollywood right and so somebody's like wow it'd be really cool to have like a a bollywood um, uh, Destroyer of Worlds or Bollywood Son of the Black Sword movie. I said, yeah, but we couldn't do a musical number. They're like, yeah, sure we could. I was like, nah, Ashok don't dance. <laughs> like, like literally, there's Ashok. There is no music in Ashok. <laughs> no, but um, the uh, having those two characters uh, pivotal, and so this book, I've been able to bring their relationship forward and uh, do a lot of stuff. They're both really broken people, but uh, they're broken in a compatible way because Thera's had a rough, rough life. I got into her backstory a lot in number two. Uh, and number three, uh, get to take that forward. She basically now is thrust into a leadership position she doesn't want. Ashok's in a leadership position he doesn't want. And now they're basically leading a, a war. Um, and then I got a bunch of other characters in there that I have a lot of fun with, supporting characters that go off and do their things. Uh, one of the things when I started doing this series is I wanted to do the epic fantasy thing where there's a large cast of characters that we would follow over a period of time um and so i've been having a lot of fun with this it's uh, pretty cool yeah. now ashok doesn't he started out with this amazing black sword called uh what it was andra and group it all and group it all um and it it kind of like had memories of fighting that he could access right yeah so basically in this series, uh, in the backstory of the series, which is huge, uh, uh, in the myths and legends of these people, uh, one of the sources of magic is this stuff called black steel. 
And what it was is in ancient times when the demons fell to earth and they were slaughtering mankind before man drove them back into the sea. Uh, the way they were able to draw him back and see is this legendary hero fell from the heavens and he was armed with this stuff called black steel, which is a source of magic. Um, and he united the tribes, united the people, brought them together. They drove the demons into the sea. He forged a bunch of weapons out of this stuff because demons are damn near instructable. But black steel is this material that, that, retains the memories of everyone that's ever used it and actually turns out as the series goes on it's intelligent um it's far more intelligent than people assume um and it has great capabilities uh and i and i can't get into this too much without revealing too many things uh about the series but um black steel is extremely potent powerful stuff well there's this one black steel weapon it's been around for you know, uh, a thousand years, a thousand years now. It's named after this guy's fam, or his family is named after it. But black steel weapons, being intelligent, actually choose their users. And so, what it is is this um, this sword. Uh, its prior user has died. Uh, people are trying to pick it up and use it to become the new bearer, which is a, uh, a an office of great authority and status and power in the society. I mean, it's like you're a super rock star, okay? And they're going to make you president. <laughs> and so everybody's trying to pick up the sword, and then Grubadol keeps finding them unworthy, 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 unworthy. And it's, this has gone on now for quite a while, and people keep failing. So they've got this one little kid who's castless. He's a, he's a, he's a non-person. He's uh, the lowest of the low. He's not even considered human, according to the law. But he's there as a servant because his job is to scrub up the blood every day. So after people hurt themselves trying to wield this weapon this little kid is the one they bring in to clean up the blood every night well while he's doing this at one point in time he has to move the sword because there's blood under it and the sword accepts him so he so this little castless boy becomes the new bearer that's Ashok 20 years ago yeah. so it's uh, really important to the story that he's castless and, oh yeah yes there's a anyway. lot of there's a lot of stuff there i'm, I'm, I'm kind of glossing over <laughs> yeah but the, well, and groove is a character basically and yeah. and groove i don't want to say too much but and groove is um I, I took a lot of the tropes from uh epic fantasy going back for years of the magic sword of the intelligent magic sword and i had a lot of fun with that and uh and groove is still with us in a slightly different form i can't say too much there and Holy crap, it is potent. Yeah. Well, when he starts, <laughs> so uh, when, when we start, uh, Ashok doesn't physically have uh, the sword anymore to, to fight with. So that's a problem he's got to deal with. Yeah, um, so this basically his whole life, Ashok has been able to, to call upon this sword. He's been this bearer. Basically, he's walking around with the magical weapon of mass destruction. I mean, uh, a black steel blade enables one man to take on an army. Um, th this guy, well, not quite a whole army, but he'd be pretty good. Uh, you're incredibly lethal and you're armed not just with this weapon that can destroy anything um but also it has the knowledge and the instinct of all its prior bearers so basically you're not fighting one guy with this thing you're fighting the combined experience of the last 40 generations of people who have used this thing so ashok has called upon that his whole life well he got deprived of that a while ago and he's been kind of on his own let me tell you this guy has gone through some weapons too because he keeps breaking regular swords <laughs> It's amazing when you go from like an indestructible, you know, super magical killing machine to a regular sword made of metal. You can't just, you know, wail away on an elephant-sized demon and, uh, and, yeah. and do quite well. But he's still no. like, I mean, he's got 
these the the protectors get this amazing training so he's beyond just the bearer of the sword he's he's insanely good yeah even on his own he's he's probably the most dangerous or one of the most dangerous combatants on the planet um him and davidas uh right so tell us about davidas who's who's both a friend and a and a and a rival in bane and and uh I love writing Devados actually. To me, he's one of my he's one of my favorite characters. And the poor guy is actually kind of in a rock and a hard place because he's kind of basically functionally in the series the bad guy. Uh he's the antagonist Ashok. Uh however, uh you understand exactly why he's doing what he's doing and and uh and in a way you kind of root for him. Uh Devados is oh, as a reminder, we have a podcast right now. <laughs> <laughs> um Devados is everything or, or Ashok is everything that Devados ever aspired to be without wanting it. Uh, Devados was supposed to have been a bearer. His father was a bearer of a black steel blade, but it was lost. And so he was deprived of that. Uh, Devados was supposed to be a ruler, um, but his father killed himself in shame and uh, their house was destroyed. So Devados had that taken from him. So he got farmed off to the protective order where they're not supposed to be personally ambitious, but this kid worked and worked and worked and he was the best of them. And the second best of them was Ashok, who he actually looked at as kind of a little brother because he's about, he's about uh, three or four years older than Ashok, I think. Uh, maybe five years older than Ashok. And he looks at Ashok as a little brother. They go through these trials together. They're best friends. Uh, but he's always, there's always that element of jealousy there that Ashok has, was just given to him all these things that Devados wanted and never could have. And as the series goes on, the biggest weakness Devados has is he is a man of incredible ambition. He, he has huge, lofty goals. He's got a very high opinion of himself, but it's justified. He is really good at what he does. And um, so it just kind of goes from there. And so basically for Devados to reach his goals, he has to kill his uh, former best friend and guy who's basically his little brother. And so it's a struggle between these two guys. Yeah. And he's sort of, he is in a, it's not really an alliance, but he's, He's on again, off again, working with uh, with our other big bad guy, who is Grand Inquisitor Orman Vokan. Uh, now that guy is bad. <laughs> he's just—he didn't have much oh. redeeming. No, things, no except that he's really cool. smart and very evil. <laughs> and, yeah, so it's like in this. So I wanted in the series. I didn't want to have him just you new know, snivy, whiplash, mustache, tw- twirling for the sake of evil, evil. But basically, everybody who's the antagonist, there's a reason for it. Omond among them is basically a sociopath who was appointed to a position where his sociopathic tendencies could be used in the furtherance of the law. The fact is, if it wasn't for the law, if it wasn't for the Office of Inquisition, where this guy could use his murderous murderous gifts, he would have been a serial killer in any other society. And uh, he is brutal. He's brutal, but he's also super intelligent and conniving. And he's kind of a political chess master. And to him, uh, he, he feels nothing but the only time Oman feels joy is when he's manipulating others for his gain. And he's super good at it. And uh, I get to get really political in this book with the machinations between all these different houses and the capital. And Oman is the leader of the Order of Inquisition, which is just this brutal group of basically law enforcers that go out and crush dissent and scrub illegal history and religion uh and uh, oman has used that knowledge that they've gained to get into some really dark forbidden stuff 
Uh, so he's got some personal goals. He really wants to remake society in his image. Basically, Amand wants to become immortal. He, he has a plan. Uh, he, wants to, he wants to rule the world, and he wants to live forever. And uh, he's got a plan to do so. So part of that is the uh, is is his big plan to get rid of the castless, which is where we are at the beginning of the um, at the beginning of uh, of Destroyer of Worlds. So we're not giving anything away with that. It, the Great Extermination begins, and yeah. this is this is what plays through the rest of the book. Yeah. Um, so so basically, so so how it works in this society? There's four castes. There's the ruling caste, which is the first caste. That's the um, in a religious society, that'd be your Brahmin priest caste. But this is basically, these are the, um, the government employees, basically, is what they are. The bureaucrats. They are the high class. Then there's the next caste, the warrior caste, uh, which basically answers to them. But they are the military. They are, in each house, they're structured a little bit different. There's 12 houses. Uh, and below that is the worker caste, which is the, actually the majority of the population. These are people who, this is your farmers, your craftsmen, your merchants, and they're, they're very stratified where they have basically a hundred subcasts and offices in there, right? This is a society where everybody is over somebody else and everybody answers to somebody else. But then there's the fourth, which is not a cast at all. It's the non-people. Uh, these are the people who do the dregs of society job. These are the people that clean the sewers. Uh, the, you know, you muck out the stalls. They're basically lowest of all. Actually, the other cast do actually have slaves. Slaves are over the castless. Slaves are... Slaves are people who lost their office uh, or they're being punished or it's, it's basically like the, the slavery is a punishment. You, you are uh, consigned to a period of slavery for X number of years. The caste lists are lower than that because legally they aren't people. Actually, they're below the livestock. Cows and pigs and chickens are worth more than the caste lists. However, there's lots of them and they live, they're, they're referred to this derogatory term as uh, fish eaters. Because remember, the ocean is hell. It's the source of uncleanness. Right. Oceans well, is the same as, uh, you know, some yeah. four-letter word. For <laughs> oh, yeah, it is. Totally. Oceans is a bad word. And you don't say that for like company. The ocean is, and salt water. Salt water is okay because you need it. Uh, salt water is pure evil. There's no redeeming quality for salt water. Fish eaters are the ones that live by the oceans. They're the only people that, you know, make their living off the, off the waterways. That's what the castles are. Now, the castles, there's a reason where the castles uh, exist, where they come from, their bloodline, uh, who they really are, and that's all gets in the series. Ashok was born uh, castless and uh, basically had his memory of that time erased and was rebuilt as this perfect servant of the law um, when he got the ancestor blade. And all this is revealed to him in the first book, so no, not really spoilers here, but um, yeah, so Oman has a plan. Um, it involves the history of the castles. It involves uh, the forces of hell, the demons, and it involves magic. But part of that plan is he has to exterminate the castles. He has to kill all the non-people in Locke, which is millions of people. And so he has launched uh, this genocide, basically. Uh, the Order of Inquisition has drafted the warrior caste to go. And it's funny because uh, in the last book, we even got into like how he basically faked um fake the whole thing to be like oh yeah we did all these studies and we'll kill them all no problem we'll be done by summer there's no real economic implication there's no problem it's a piece of cake really it's great it's fine <laughs> and uh so yeah and that's that's where we're at in the beginning of the book. Well, when he did that he pissed off um one of our other characters who is who very much cares about getting things exactly right who's rada 
Um, and uh, I love Rob so much. And she's like, uh, she's like this this militant librarian. Um, yes. And she's she's Devadas's love interest, actually. Um, yeah. I love that relationship. Yeah. <laughs> Rada is one of my favorite characters. Basically, so if you look at the cast of characters, I drew people from um, every cast um, uh, for the characters. And so there's a, there's, there's a major point of view character from every one of the casts. And uh, Rada, Rada is first cast. Rada is from the bureaucrat cast, uh, the leaders. Uh, so she is highborn. She's from the capital. And her obligation, her job, her whole life, her position is she's an archivist. So she works at the Grand Library. And it's this giant super library in the capital. It's basically the, the biggest compendium. It's the Library of Alexandria on steroids. Okay, It's the compendium of knowledge uh, for, for the, the entire land. And she is one of the people very proud of that. Well, what happens to her in the first book is she's given this assignment by the judges, by the politicians, to go out and research... Uh, is there any reason in the law, because remember this has been hundreds of years they've been building this law, is there any reason in the law we can't kill the castless? Is there any reason in the law we can't exterminate the castless? You know, tradition says we shouldn't, but is that really necessary? So she, she actually, she, this is not, they originally give the assignment to an idiot who's going to just do a crappy job, only Rada steals it from him, and uh, she's not supposed to because she's going to do a good job. So she goes in and she does do a good job and she learns a bunch of things, forbidden knowledge that are kept from the general public that she shouldn't know about the history of Locke and the magic. And uh, so she learns the truth as to why they should not do this, not just morally, but why this is like the doom of mankind. And when she does this, uh, they silence her. The Inquisition, Oman's people uh, silence her and scare her into keeping her mouth shut. The only reason they don't kill her is because she's high enough birth that that would have been embarrassing. It would have been questionable. It would have caused too much attention. Um, she takes this to Devados, and that's how their relationship begins, because he's the Lord Protector. And um, only Devados, instead of you know exposing the plot and destroying the plot, looks because he's such an ambitious guy, looks at the plot and goes, you know, that's pretty cool. I wonder what I could do with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's... Uh, but Rada is actually a really good person, um, and she means well. And as the story goes on, she kind of winds up getting sucked along on an adventure, uh, which is way out of her comfort zone because she's just a library. She's she's had a pampered, sheltered life. She's also violently antisocial. She does not like people. She's super shy. She's very quiet. She does not. She's an introvert. Does not deal well with others. And she just kind of gets shoved off into this crazy adventure. Yeah. Who, uh, and Davidos has assigned one of my favorite characters, who is Carno, um, <laughs> to protect her. He kind of reminds me of of, uh, of of your Frankenstein, uh, dude. Oh, Franks. Yeah, in a yeah. way, maybe I don't know. Not, but, and, 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 well, they're both big dudes who are men of few words. The best way to put that. that that's what they have in common. Uh, Carno is one of my favorite characters. He's a uh, he's a protector also. And he's probably, you know, uh, he's not as good as Devados or Ashok, but he's up there. He's, like, good. And he's a big guy, though, and he doesn't really like to fight with swords. He's not a fast guy. He uses a hammer. He uses a big-ass war hammer. And the guy is legend. In fact, they call him Blunt Carno, and not necessarily because of the hammer, but because Carno has no pretenses. He has no uh, – there's no – there's no dramatic flair with Carno. Everything that comes out of Carno's mouth is the most straightforward, direct, honest assessment of events. <laughs> and so 
um, he gets assigned to protect Rob. And uh, those two together are actually kind of amazing. Yeah. Uh, he takes on, I mean, it's kind of uh, like if a wizard comes at him, say a wizard turns into a tiger and tries to attack. He's just going to, he's going to just deal with it. He's going to fight, love, for, you know. Little, little spoiler, but there's a scene where, well, they're fighting these wiz- shape-changing wizards, basically, from the Inquisition. And uh, a little spoiler alert, but, but, but one of them turns into a tiger. And he's going to chase Rada, who's trying to escape. And as the tiger bounds past Carno, Carno just reaches out and grabs its tail and starts flailing the tiger. <laughs> yeah, he's great. <laughs> he's a mo- that dude is that dude is monstrous. I love Carno. He's there's a great scene where where um, he's armed with basically the equivalent of a framing hammer versus a room full of inquisitors. <laughs> oh gosh that scene was glorious (laughs) yeah that was that was good i like that (laughs) yeah well he's great um and we also meet uh we some characters that that we've come to love from the previous books uh we we continue to see where they go uh jagdish and uh gutch oh i love Um, jagdish and gutch those guys are amazing the uh okay so jagdish is uh my warrior cast point of view guy he is Every he's the consummate warrior cast guy. He's proud. He's cocky. Um, he's also low, lowborn, so he was not a man of status. He's had to work and fight and scrape, and uh, he's actually a good leader. Is the main thing is he he actually loves his men. He's smart. He cares about them, and he's he's a great tactician. But the problem with poor Jagdish is this warrior has been working so hard, and he got sucked into the maelstrom that is the life of Ashok Vidal. Uh, so at one point in time in the first book, all these warriors have to try to stop Ashok, who is just a force of superhuman magical power. I mean, the guy is a monster. And so these poor warriors try to stop Ashok and just get slaughtered. So they have to blame somebody and they blame Jagdish. And so he's given a crap assignment, which is he's going to be the warden of the prison Ashok is in, who then, of course, that doesn't work out well, as you know. And, uh, so poor Jagdish gets shamed again. And so this guy, his name is just ruined. So, but he also he learns how to fight from just taking on Ashok over and over, which is cool. Yeah. So he's pretty yeah, good by this been, point. And those two, those two actually become because Ashok does not have very many friends in his life. Uh, Jack Geese is one of his only friends, and how they first met was trying to kill each other. And uh, and it's interesting because Jack Geese is a great guy. Um, He's actually in an arranged marriage, uh, like most people in this world. Uh, marriages are arranged by your caste for their own benefit. Be- as an insult to him, because he's a warrior who's kind of, his name is bad. He's failed repeatedly. He's married off to a work, a uh, woman from the worker caste, which is actually an insult. Uh, it's kind of like, that's like a low scrape in the barrel thing for these guys. Well, except it turns out he loves his, his uh, arranged marriage. He loves his wife. She's, she loves, he, she's wonderful. He actually blunders into something wonderful and as the story goes on he he has to leave her to go after ashok on this quest to try to you know reclaim his name and his honor um i don't want to say too much about what happens to jagdish and destroyer of worlds but uh, he's a hell of a good guy and uh like there's some there's some really tragic things that happened to uh, jagdish but he his adventure is not done uh there's there's much ahead of jagdish and now guts Gutch is Gutch is a hoot. <laughs> I love writing Gutch. Okay, so Gutch, Gutch is a worker. He's a utilitarian fellow. Oh yes, 
Gutch is, Gutch is from the highest level of the worker caste. Um, he is a master craftsman by trade. Um, so basically he's a, uh, he's a, he's a, he's a smith of fine armor and weapons by training and, uh, and very, very good at what he does. However, Gutch is also, uh, a lion ass bastard criminal. <laughs> he is so skeezy and just really a dishonest kind of guy and Gutch actually has a gift and that he can sense magic very few people in this world I've actually introduced a hand like two or three in the entire series of art uh are people born with a gift where they can sense the presence of magic remember magic is illegal except for use by the capital and so it's very very controlled so Gutch discovers this in his youth and so he becomes an illegal magic smuggler and that he goes and he finds magic and then he sells it on the black market and he smuggles it. And so Gutch is our guy that knows every scumbag in the world, in every town, whatever the criminal entity beneath the law is, Gutch knows it. And as we follow Gutch through the series, it's a, he, he might know it, but sometimes it turns out that they really hate Gutch's guts and want to murder him. <laughs> and he's, this, he's a big guy. He's a big, uh, chunky, jolly guy. Uh, and who actually, I, I really come to love him. And uh, him and Jagdish get thrown together, and Gutch gets sucked along in the uh, in the in the wake the wake of Ashok uh, changing the world. Um, and I, I don't want to say too much about what happens to Gutch in Destroyer World, but something really pivotal happens to him. He's chosen for a a job that suits his particular uh, criminal and craftsman nature. That was part one of a two-part interview with Larry Correa discussing Destroyer of Worlds. Part two will be available on next week's podcast. Here is another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Solarian League. For hundreds of years, they have borne the banner of human civilization. But the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's league are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart star kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising courage. Honor Harrington has worn the star kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now Honor Harrington is coming for the Solarian League, and hell is riding in her wake. And now, David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. Everything we've heard about their operational stance suggests they're seizing the wormholes primarily with battle cruisers and cruisers, she continued serenely. I think that's most likely the case here, and that we won't be looking at super dreadnoughts whenever their Agueda force gets back. If we are, though, then Santini's orders will be to punch as many missiles at them as he can from as short a range as possible, accepting that they'll be blind fire before he translates out and runs the hell back to Wincote. And before he does that, one of his tin cans will transit to a J and warn the rest of us what's coming up our collective backside. Frankly, given the combat differential, they probably wouldn't really need wallers to kick our butts, 
she said, frankly. A half dozen of those big battle cruisers of theirs could do the job without breaking a sweat, especially since that logistics vessel of theirs is sitting out there somewhere with a load of additional pods for them. And Kimo, I want Santini's orders to be clear. I don't care whether it's super dreadnoughts, battle cruisers, or a horde of outraged gerbils. If the Mandys turn up and start firing shit pods of missiles at him, then he had better get his arse into hyper and out of here before any of them get a chance to hit anything. Understood, ma'am. Well, so far, you seem to have read them pretty well, sir, Lester Tory said quietly, as he and Commodore Lessam stood watching the master plot and Lessam's steward replenished their coffee mugs. They'd been watching the Solarians through the Ghost Rider platforms they'd left behind for almost nine hours now. The wormhole and its approaches formed a zone three quarters of a light second across, defining a sphere with circumference of 2.36 light seconds and a volume of over 5.9 quadrillion cubic kilometers. The Solarian warships were a handful of minute specks in that enormity, and it was impossible for the plot to show the individual missile pods they'd been busily deploying ever since they'd taken possession of it. The hidden recon platforms and the computers were keeping track, though. And according to them, the Solarian CO had placed approximately 70,000 pods. Judging from the earlier firing pattern, each one of those pods contained only six missiles, considerably fewer than 11th Fleet's pods at Manticore, but that still came to roughly 420,000 missiles, which would be enough to give just about any one pause. They'd also sent a quartet of destroyers through to a J, clearly probing the terminus with light units before their battle cruisers made transit into the face of something unpleasant. One of those DDs had returned five hours ago, so it would appear Sopo and Obusier had executed Lessam's orders and kept right on accelerating away from the far side of the terminus. No doubt the other three Sollies were making sure the approaches to the Ajay terminus stayed as clear as they were just then. Maybe, Lessam replied to the chief of staff's comment, his voice as low as Tori's had been. But I have to admit, there's one thing, at least one thing I can't figure out, and that worries me. And what's that, sir? What the hell they're after? The Commodore shook his head, eyes narrowed in thought. I mean, there are only two reasons for them to be here. One is to take control of the Terminus before we do, and they obviously didn't manage that. I don't care how many missile pods these people are deploying, they won't have enough, not without Ghost Rider and Apollo, to keep Admiral Correa from kicking their asses all the way from here to old Chicago when Pierrier catches him with our dispatch. He paused, quirking an eyebrow at the commander as if to invite a response, but Tori only nodded. It was a given that the Culverin-class destroyer would bring back a quick response from the rest of the task force as soon as she reached it. Well, in that case, what we're seeing is an exercise in futility. If they'd gotten here before we did, before the Admiral headed for Agueda, then all this activity of theirs might make sense as a way to fortify the terminus against anything coming through from a J. If they're attacked from this side, though, not so much. So from that perspective, they should already have headed home. Or if not that, I don't see any reason for them to invest this many missile pods on this side of the terminus in an effort to prevent the inevitable. Transit to a J and fortify L out of the J terminus, sure. Failing that, hang around, make us maneuver against them, make us use up missiles the way we made them use up missiles, all of that I could see, sort of. 
but any of that would come in a piss-poor second to fortin up in a jay. And even if they can churn the things out like cookies, 70,000 of them, the next best thing to 80,000 is an awful lot of industrial effort to just toss out the airlock. He paused again, puffing his cheeks in frustration, then sipped coffee. But that brings us to the second reason for them to be here, and that's because they intended to raid Ajay. What it looks to me like they're doing is fortifying the Terminus against us, our task group, not Admiral Correa, before they poke their noses into Ajay. They want to keep us from sneaking back in and retaking the Prime Terminus to ambush them when they come home again while they move on Ajay. But they've got to know we've had plenty of time to evacuate all of our ships and personnel from the system, if that's what we've decided to do. So why raid an empty cookie jar? I mean, I suppose it would be an exercise in showing the flag, turning up in a jay after they've chased the nasty mantis out of town, but that'd be a purely cosmetic accomplishment. Again, stacking half a million missiles out where they're likely to lose them for little or no return strikes me as a pretty stiff price tag for a symbolic victory. That's a valid point, sir, Tori said after gazing down into his own coffee mug for several thoughtful seconds. And I don't have an answer. Neither do I, and that's why it worries me. Lessam waved his mug at the icons of the Solarian ships. We're missing something. There's got to be a reason they're doing this. And I can't shake the suspicion that whatever it is, it represents a significant shift in their strategy. Well, maybe we can find out what it's all about from the survivors, sir, Tori said. You're right about what's going to happen to them on this side when the Admiral comes back, assuming your own brainchild doesn't send them on their way even sooner than that. But whatever they've got in mind for a Jay, I think they're going to find it just a little more difficult to carry out than they think. Maybe. Lessam smiled briefly. It was remarkably cold, that smile. We put enough effort into the cheese anyway. The task force is ready to proceed, ma'am, Rear Admiral Romales said formally, and Jane Isotalo nodded. I'm assuming that if we'd heard anything untoward from Captain Oglesby's division, you'd have brought that minor fact to my attention. Yes, ma'am. I believe you could safely assume that. Very good, she said. In that case, Admiral, proceed. Aye, aye, ma'am. Ramalis looked at Rear Admiral Rosiak. Execute, he said. Aye, aye, sir. Executing now. Rosiak touched a macro, and the carefully orchestrated movement plan unfolded with metronome precision. Isotalo sat back in her command chair, fingers of her right hand toying absently with the closure of her skin suit while she did her primary job radiating serene confidence as her subordinates executed her directives. She still didn't like the idea of Buccaneer one bit, but she felt a deep sense of satisfaction as her task force rumbled toward its objective. After the seemingly unending tide of Manticoran triumphs and Solarian debacles, TF-1027 was about to execute its orders flawlessly. According to Captain Hieronymus Oglesby and his three destroyers, the far side of the terminus was just as naked as she'd hoped it would be. The destroyer's recon drones had confirmed, as she'd expected, that any manticoran or neutral shipping in a jay had cleared the limit and disappeared across the alpha wall long since, and that was a pity. But Buccaneer's true objective couldn't escape into hyper, and there wasn't a trace of a manti warship to be found. 
she reminded herself of how astoundingly good Manticore and electronic warfare had proved both against 11th Fleet and against her own missile salvo right here on the Terminus. It was possible there were still Manti warships hiding under stealth somewhere in a J, but it would have required direct divine intervention to hide anything bigger than a frigate from her destroyers and their reconnaissance platforms within 10 or 20 light seconds of the Terminus. The Terminus itself was enough to interfere with sensors, enough to make it more difficult to detect gravitic and electronic emission signatures in the first place although not seriously enough to significantly degrade fire control once the target had been picked up in the first place. But it was also, for all its size, a limited volume. Any ship large enough to pose a threat to her battlecruisers that couldn't be picked up by Warshawskis or radar would have a hard time, a very hard time, hiding from visual and thermal detection. No, she thought. The hen house door really is wide open, damn it. SLNS Hindustan, leading Lamont Bonrepos TG-1027.1, headed into the terminus and flickered into non-existence on her way to join the destroyers in a J. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Uncompromising Honor by David Weber. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to audible.com and to podcast theme composer, Ruth Judkowitz. And the roar of a sea demon stepping on land and right into a pasture paddy left by a mostly peaceful, somewhat carnivorous herd of dragon cows. Plus thanks, praise and gratitude for Larry Correa, author of Destroyer of Worlds. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. <laughs>